0: All right, welcome back. Um, so I, uh, I mentioned that I was, I was teaching a retreat last week and, um, and someone wrote a note. We, uh, we were teaching uh, loving kindness meditation every day there. And I thought about actually teaching that tonight, but uh, I, I decided not to. Uh, in any case uh, each day there was a different loving kindness practice and in in that practice though uh, there's a a different kind of ways of doing it but it kind of comes to this point where you're it's suggested that you try to send love to all beings And, and they'll use phrases like may all beings be free from suffering they 're almost like prayers, right? May all beings be happy, may all beings be safe and and one of the newer students who was just being introduced to the practice wrote us a note that teachers and saying i 'm having a hard time with that because it doesn't am I really expected to think that that's going to happen that if I just say these words, it seems unreal, unrealistic. And when I say it, it seems kind of phony in a way. I, th- I think is what he was saying. It's like I'm sitting here going, "May all beings be happy," but I, I don't really believe that's possible. Even not to mention that I don't believe that my thinking it is going to make it happen. So it it uh, you know it brought up for me a, a bigger bigger questions about the practice of loving kindness. So uh, loving kindness is. A traditional Buddhist practice, and it's it's part of a a, a group of four uh, qualities called Brahma Viharas or divine abodes, d- divine states. Uh, the loving kindness, which is a caring f- for others, uh, and um, and a wish for them to be happy. And then compassion, which is a concern for, for other people's suffering, a, ca- a caring about their suffering, and a wish for them to be free from suffering, specifically. And then the third quality is called mudita, and they translate that as sympathetic joy, which is not a great translation, but it's because we don't have an English word for this concept, which is taking joy in other people's joy. Like when you see a happy baby, how it makes you smile. You know, it's taking joy in the success of others and the happiness of others. So that's the third quality: loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy. And then the fourth is uh, equanimity. uh also sort of a difficult uh, idea to translate, but but it's kind of a, it's a it's a balanced state. Like why equanimity kind of has that word equal in it. It's a balanced state. But it's a very peaceful state. Uh, but it's also a state, uh, I think what's, it's really characterized by non-reactivity, that you're kind of not caught by things. And a quality, a kind of perspective, a wise perspective on things. So there are these four qualities. And they're, they're really treasured. That's why they're called divine abodes, you know, or divine abidings, um, heavenly, heavenly states. But I think they're, they're taught uh, or, or sometimes they're understood in, in a somewhat superficial way, uh, and, which is why I wrote this book, which there are copies in the lobby for $10. It's called Living Kindness. And the title itself is meant to communicate something about what I think this practice is really about. The idea that this is, we're trying to take this quality into the world, not just have a feeling inside ourselves. So, I want to talk about tonight, uh, a sort of answer the question that this student was asking, which uh, fundamentally was why are we doing this practice? What's the point of it? And what comes out of it? So, the so I, I call this aspect of loving-kindness. I'm not sure that's exactly what it is, but it's it's something like that. Um, and so the, the first aspect that we're... that's pretty obvious is this feeling. And much like the feeling of, of concentration that we were talking about before, the feeling of loving-kindness is very pleasant. And when... Loving kindness is taught as a meditation. It's often taught as a way of kind of directing people to get that feeling and then work with it. But it kind of starts with, you know, this idea open your heart, think of someone you love, see how that feels, and bring that quality, then start to share that quality, something like that. And that's, you know, a lovely sentiment. There are a couple of problems with it. One is that people can't always sort of arouse that feeling, you know. And so someone's giving you these instructions and it sounds like you're supposed to feel a certain way because I'm telling you to radiate love and to share love and to open your heart and do all this stuff. But maybe you're not feeling that. So where does that leave you? you know? Well, again, as I was talking about before about meditation, it can kind of leave you with the feeling of failure that you're not getting it right, or that there's something wrong with you. Why can't I do this? You know, everybody here must is is sharing love except me. You know, we get these ideas. It's that old uh, comparing our insides to other people's outsides. And so it's really nice when that feeling arises. <laughs> I can say that, but it's not the point of the practice and and that uh, I think uh, causes a kind of uh, disconnect and and it's even I would go so far as to say that teaching someone that, that and and sort of implying that that's the point of the practice is a corruption of the practice that's. Pretty harsh way of putting it. but There's another fundamental problem about meditating in order to get a feeling or to cultivate a feeling. And that is feelings are impermanent. You can't hold on to it no matter what. So if what you're trying to do is become a more loving person and you think that that means I have to feel loving all the time, you're inevitably going to feel like a failure at some point because that feeling is going to pass. So that can't be the point. You know? The Buddha doesn't really teach things that don't make sense. You know? So I don't think what he was trying to do was get everybody to feel sweetness and uh, you know, warmth towards every human being or every living being all the time. Nonetheless, the feeling can be part of it. Right? But when there, when you're gi- being given this instruction, which is fa- fairly simple, there's there's a few elements to it. Usually c- kind of feeling the breath in the body and, and t- in the art, heart center, as we call it, in the middle of the chest. And then visualizing. So there's kind of seeing people like and seeing yourself, sending love to yourself, which is also one of the big challenges. And then um, sending it to others and then saying these words. What I think we're, uh, for, for me what I think is at the center of this is to connect with our own uh, vulnerability and our own capacity for love and our realization of our connection with other beings, with all other beings. So, when we do this practice of, uh, and the Buddha says these words, radiating kindness over the entire world. That's one of the lines from the Loving Kindness Sutta. It's to remember that what i want sitting here breathing and being trying to open my heart and feel love is the same thing that every being wants so this is an ins- and, and that's an insight right when you realize that what i'm feeling right now isn't personal my longing for connection or even my sense of connection is just a human experience. So something clicks then and your understanding of your place in the world changes. So this kind of insight is more key to the development of a loving kindness practice than necessarily feeling loving all the time. You know, and sort of judging your practice on how loving you feel at a given time, right is that insight then changes your whole view of the world all of a sudden uh, you seeing interconnection. we realize it's not just oh I'm connected with all of you but it's like you look out the window it's like oh I'm connected with all of that too I'm part of this whole thing and that's a transformative insight now out of that insight then can come changes in the way we live the way we behave the way we treat people the way we look at people so in terms of aspects of loving kindness, there's the feeling of loving kindness, but then there's the insight that comes with the practice of loving kindness. The The insight we can call right view, which is the first element of the Eightfold Path. This right view is seeing interconnection. It's seeing cause and effect. It's seeing how suffering arises. Seeing how humans create suffering for themselves. It's, it's seeing that uh, it's it, and when we see how people create suffering for themselves compassion arises. So the second of the Brahma Viharas comes up through this insight. And when we have that insight then the second element of the Eightfold Path arises right intention. I want to be different. I want to uh, serve, you know, the spiritual awakening we talk about in the 12 steps. So the spiritual awakening of the 12 steps, which is that is the same thing. It's the realization that I'm not unique. I'm not, I'm not different really from anyone else. It's, you know, in the 12-step world, that's sort of put into this context of addiction so that's having had a spiritual awakening we tried to carry this message to other addicts or alcoholics or whatever this the buddhist spiritual awakening is broader it's having had a spiritual awakening we tried to carry this message to all beings right the message of love and connection and compassion and wisdom so as i say that then changes our behavior so uh, th- this comes back to the simple, uh, pre- simple, but I'll say it's, it's simple idea of following precepts. Right, the the five precepts in Buddhism: to not kill, not to steal, not to harm sexually, not to harm verbally, not to use intoxicants. Well, those seem to be just rules, right? They're they're really about aligning your karma with so that. Your life will unfold in a good way. But Venerable Analia, one of the great uh, modern Buddhist scholars, says that the acting, uh, following the precepts, following that morality, is an act of compassion in and of itself. Now, this is an uh, interesting idea, that when I don't harm people, <laughs> when I'm not selfish, you know, when I don't do harmful things, that that's an act of kindness and compassion for the world. Well, that makes sense, right? And, and this kind of brings us back to one of the ways that the Buddha teaches. He teaches in this, uh, often in negative terms. It just, a lot of what he's saying is, just don't do harm. It's not all like, oh, do all this great stuff. It's like, actually, if you just don't harm you're way ahead of the game, you know, and you're really, you're helping the world so much when you're just not harming. So I think it's beautiful that that the precepts are an act of compassion. It's not some, a way we typically think of that. We think of precepts more as, oh, I'm trying to be an upstanding person or a good person or... Uh, you know or or at, at least we think i just don't want to get in trouble you know <laughs> by stealing shit or something you know but but when I mean, one of the beautiful things on a meditation retreat you know we lay out the precepts at the beginning of the retreat and we'll say for instance the second precept is to not take that which is not given so if you see somebody's water bottle that they left on the trail just leave it there you know, if you see somebody's shawl out on the deck, just leave it there. And th- what will happen, you'll be like on the retreat and you'll be like, what did I do with my water bottle? No, wait, I was walking along the trail and I stopped and I put it down. I want it. And then you go back. To, it's still there. You know, like where can you like leave your stuff, you know, that, you know, like nobody will walk off with it. You know, I mean, that's pretty unusual. And it, but it's a very sweet little thing that you experience on retreat. You're like, oh, nobody touched it. It was sitting right there. So, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the other great uh, modern Buddhist scholars, talks about uh, following the precepts and the what we call sila as mental purification. Uh, another idea that i really uh, think is interesting that that following the precepts again isn't just this sort of practical thing but it has this purifying effect on the mind you know when you're not thinking about what you can get and when you're not feeling guilty about what you did and and when you're just not always kind of like trying to get over there's just this ease that comes right it's called the bliss of blamelessness. This lovely little, uh, what do you call it? Alliteration. It's been a while since I took English class. So the uh, aspect of loving kindness, the feeling, the insight, and the behavior, the living in harmony with that insight. Right? I see, I see that that uh, anger you know causes suffering oh maybe i should try to be kind you know i see that greed causes suffering maybe i should try to be generous i see that judging people uh, who are suffering is is harmful maybe i should try to be compassionate i see that being jealous of other people's success causes suffering maybe i should take joy in their their success. I had a, when I first started uh, studying writing, uh, and, and uh, it's a very joyful time for me discovering that I had this, uh, ability that I, I never knew I had. And, uh, and, and I took a creative writing class at Santa Monica college, uh, when I was three years sober. Uh, and, um, and the, it was quite a remarkable class the The, the teacher jim crusoe uh, was re- well known in the kind of l a community and there were uh, like well, well known screenwriters and people who were and there were novelists and people who were who would take his class uh, just every semester they, they weren 't taking it for credit so it was, it became just like a workshop i mean you still had to sign up for it but uh, and pay your like $5 a unit or whatever it was. Um, but it, it was a pretty interesting group. <laughs> uh, While well, I was there for, for like a couple of years, two people got novels published out of that workshop. Um, and I wound up you know, getting inspired to write my own fiction and going to graduate school and creative writing. So all of that came out of that workshop. But Jim, I remember Jim saying... You know, people, writers tend to get jealous of each other when someone else, like, gets published. But I want you to know that if you're in, with a group of people and one of the people you're working with gets their novel published, you're hanging around with the right people. And you should be happy for them, you know, because you're in the right place. and And it was really sweet. I mean, he was trying to, obviously, kind of help us to not, be jealous but he was also pointing out this kind of truism that you know if you want to be like with a bunch of writers who can't get anything published to make yourself feel good about it you know you're probably not going to be learning a lot from them because this workshop was all about learning from each other right so uh, so that that was to me sort of a a good take on mudita on sympathetic joy Um. So the feeling, the insight, the attitude of love and kindness. When we bring the attitude of compassion into our life, we start to um, view people and their suffering differently. Uh, because when people are agitated or disturbed, it can be really annoying, you know, and you can find yourself getting irritated with people who are, you know, complaining or they're, you know, they always seem to have problems. And I mean, this can happen at meetings, right? 12 step meetings, like, God, these people they are always whining, right? (laughs) Um, But when we take this attitude of compassion, we realize, oh, well, they're, they're suffering, you know, Uh, uh, you know, the most annoying people, are the ones usually who are suffering the most, you know. And so if we can turn that around for ourselves, again, uh, it, it's, it's, we're doing this partly, you know, to a large extent for ourselves because if we're getting irritated by their irritation or their annoying behavior, you know, it's just more more the same, you know. We're just creating our own problems. The Buddha talks about... Um, how we respond to what he calls our enemies. And it, it, it doesn't have to be an enemy, but it says when we respond to uh, someone else's anger with our own anger, we're giving them what they want. You know? Because if somebody's angry with us, they want us to be upset. right? And so when we do that, when we act in that way, we're just giving them what they want. It's a, you know, a f- famous sutta where the, there's a Brahman and the, and the Brahmins were often kind of in conflict with the Buddha because he was kind of uh, it felt like the, a lot of their practices were misguided and they were the kind of establishment in the, of the religious establishment of the time so this Brahman comes and he's complaining to the Buddha and he's pacing back and forth in front of him telling him everything that's wrong with him and the, and, and the Buddha finally at one point goes yeah, he's like are you done? Okay, so I want to ask you, do you ever have invite people to your home? Well, yes, of course, I have people to my home. I wouldn't what kind of person. Do you Well, when you have them, do you offer them food and drink? Yes, of course, what kind of a host would I be if I didn't offer them something? <laughs> Why are you asking me that? Well, if you offer them food and drink and they don't accept it, who does it belong to you? Well, it belongs to me. I mean, it's mine in the first place. Right, so with your anger, I'm not accepting it. It belongs to you. It's you know, uh, this kind of... He's not getting triggered, right? He's seeing that if I respond in kind to this guy, it's just going to be more... We're just going to be in this back and forth. You know, and I think we've... Probably many of us, if not everyone, has sort of had that experience where you caught yourself, somebody was just like coming at you and you're finally like, okay. And you just kind of stop, right? Like, okay, go ahead, just unload because it's like you're not getting anywhere with it. For some reason it also kind of reminds me of the way toddlers behave. If any of you were have been parents and raised kids, you know that at a certain point they start doing stuff just to get a rise out of you, right? And if you give a, if you get angry, that's what they want because they have very little power. But the one thing they can have power over is your mood. Like if they're like, "I want that, can I have that," and you're getting upset with them, you're you're giving them power, right? And they're feed, You're feeding them. And but if you don't react, after a while they just run out of steam. they like, "Oh yeah, that's what you want. Yeah, okay. Okay, Are you, go on. No, go ahead. Scream. No, no, scream. Go ahead. No, it's good. We're good." after a while they just they're not getting any kick out of it right so this idea of being able to kind of see what's going on with people and respond rather than react is kind of again kind of in this in this piece of this attitude uh, uh, compassion and loving kindness Um, so the feeling of Loving kindness, the insights, the behaviors that go with it, the attitude. All of this obviously works together. They're not really totally separate things. The meditation practice, coming back to that, because, well, uh, before I say this, uh, I wanted to kind of distinguish, and I, I guess that's that's kind of the a big point of of my book, Living Kindness, is that is to kind of distinguish between the practice itself, which has certain functions, and, I, and I'll, I'm going to try to dig into that a little bit more. Come back to that a little bit more. Uh, the practice itself, as opposed to the kind of teachings and insights, the uh, all of these. Uh, The idea of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, these are qualities that we can sort of uh, carry out, that we can manifest in any kind of situation, just like we can be mindful in any situation. We don't have to be meditating to be compassionate, right? Um, And and, and that's one of the reasons why... I don't like the idea of of sort of trying to make loving-kindness into this kind of special thing that you do and then there's the rest of your life, you know. I think that anything that's... Uh, any value of the meditation practice really needs to be taken out into our lives. Otherwise, it's just... it can actually become an escape or a feel-good practice. You know, I... I was teaching this to some college students several years ago and it 's one of the one of the real motivators for this book and I talk about this in the first chapter that I was teaching them the range of loving kindness practices, practice loving kindness for yourself, for those you love, for neutral people, for difficult people, and then for all beings it 's kind of the structure of it and th- and uh, this was a a course on Buddhism, and they were uh, supposed to meditate each day and then they would write about their experience of meditation and that was like one of the assignments the daily journaling about their practice and when I taught them loving kindness what I found was that what they would describe was sending love to their friends and their family and their pets but they would never go beyond that and I realized they were just doing it to feel good and I don't have anything against feeling good. I think it's great to feel good. It's even good to feel good. But that's a limited practice. As I said, it's just a feeling, right? It's impermanent. It doesn't last. You can't do anything with it. And as, and so uh, that's, that's why I don't, you know, to, to sort of, get into the practice as a feel-good practice, it's just a very limited use of it. Um, and as I say, that can be beneficial, and I don't want to discourage people from enjoying that. And, but to enjoy it with an understanding that, oh, that's what this is, this is a pleasant feeling, it's impermanent. I benefit from it just like you know if you go to the gym and work out and you get a a big uh, endorphin rush that's pleasant you enjoy it, it is not, you shouldn't avoid it just because it's pleasant but you, if you go to the gym to work out to get an endorphin rush and then you leave and you go oh man I need some more endorphin I'm going back to the gym now you know it becomes like an addiction so Uh, That being said, some of the interior elements of the loving kindness practice, to get into the meditation elements of it particularly, the, 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 um, and I mean, this does expand out, but to talk about how it might work, so to just repeat these phrases, it's an interesting thing. So you say you're saying to yourself, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe. May all beings be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe. This starts to shift, again, kind of your attitude, and it can actually kind of plant positive seeds in the mind. And so this is where I think the the practice, as just a formal meditation practice, has an absolute value that we start to say, you know, I really, this is how I want to think. And this is one of the things the Buddha talks about uh, when he instructs removing distracting thoughts. He says to replace negative thoughts with more positive thoughts. This can be a useful a real value of loving-kindness practice that we start to plant this positive thought process and positive images in our minds. That needs to be tied with the insight, though. Because if it's just words, right, it's not really meaningful. It needs to be seen, it needs to be understood, I think, fully. Nonetheless, there's this real value in sort of starting to um, kind of c- condition more positive thoughts in the mind. Um, now, one of the... it's Interestingly, in Burma where this is taught, in the, in the meditation centers, uh, it's used a lot because of its concentration value. I want to describe why that might be, it might be particularly useful for that. So the practice uh, has several different elements. There's the element of breath, where you're kind of feeling the breath in the heart. And then there's the element of visualization, where you're kind of bringing up an image of a person. It's not always done exactly that way, but that can be one of the elements. And then there's the element of the words that you're repeating, the phrases. So in order to hold all three of those things at once, it requires a balanced mind, and the mind can get very absorbed in that. You know, just trying to pay attention to the breath, there's not much there. You know, it's very subtle. It's easy for the mind to slip off the breath. But when we use the breath and the imagery and the phrases, the mind can get very concentrated. And then, in that state of concentration, a very pleasant, because you're thinking very positive thoughts and kind of arousing these positive feelings, the feelings of joy can arise. And it turns out that the feeling of joy in a concentrated state is actually the entryway into the deeper concentration practices that are called jhana. So jhanas are altered states of of consciousness. And they're, they're talked about a lot in their early teachings. The Buddha practiced them. They're uh, powerful uh, in their capacity to... Uh, it really bring the you know the mind into a, a balanced, uh, stable, very stable uh, and quiet state. And uh, surprisingly, and, and the, so there are four uh, foundational jhanas, and the the besides the quality of concentration, the the first two have two other elements that. They're called Pt and sukha, and those are translated as rapture and joy. And which, when I first sort of started to study this, surprised me. that um, Because concentration, in my experience, had always been more of a quiet, uh, calm state. And rapture is this kind of very energetic state. But it turns out that in order to move into these states, you have to actually get this very energetic quality aroused. And then you kind of, it kind of, it's like kind of a trampoline. You know, you bounce on it, and then it gets you high enough that you can kind of get over the fence onto the jhana side, if that makes any sense. Uh, It's sort of like you had to be there. Or you, ha- you have to be there or, or have been there. Nonetheless, there's co- sort of this... Because I, I know I might be getting into the weeds here, but why not? I don't often do this. Concentration is very calming. One of the reasons you fall asleep when you're meditating is because you're getting concentrated and you don't have enough energy to hold that much concentration. So if you think of that concentration as that earth element, it's like, you know, you get heavy, grounded, deep, quiet. But if there's no fire element there or maybe air element, something to lift it, then you just kind of sink. And I imagine any everybody here who has meditated to any degree has had the experience of falling asleep and there's a tendency to think oh well I'm just falling asleep it's useless but actually the fact that you're falling asleep is a good start <laughs> it's not where you want to end up but it shows that you're getting quieter and you're getting more calm and you're getting more relaxed right so that's a good start but in order to let that, get that concentration to be really deep without falling asleep you need this countervailing energy this is actually one of the famous lists, the five spiritual powers. Uh, and, and two of those powers are energy and concentration, and they are balancing qualities. The, uh, two of the others are faith and wisdom, which also are balancing. And then the fifth is, guess what, mindfulness. But energy and concentration need to be in balance in order to get concentrated. So if you're going really deep, you need to get a whole lot of energy. So it's kind of freaky, <laughs> Uh, and this really only happens if you go on for most people it only happens on a longer retreat but at a certain point this energy starts to just shoot up and it's kind of like kundalini of, of people who have studied that yoga this is just, just energy starts to come in the body and if you don't know what to do with it you're like what the hell is going on and I went for about three years of not going what the hell is going on because I didn't know and none of my teachers apparently knew until I ran into one who did so it's it's kind of a weird thing. You you know your mind's getting very settled, and then this energy starts to come, and you're like, and and you have to um, blend them. <laughs> and w- what happens is you 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 bring them together, and the and there's it's like you're surfing on a really powerful wave, and you're just like, and I got to just stay cool with this. Don't freak out, and. And at a certain point, you know, if you ride it far enough, it kind of breaks. And now you go into the second jhana, which is sukha. Now there's joy there, but the energy, you don't need as much energy anymore because you're just being carried. Now it's not like a wave. Now it's like a river. Now you're just flowing on it. And there's energy, but it's it's not like, well, the scary kind of energy. It's this flowing energy. Second jhana. So sukha pt sukha rapture joy well loving kindness very intense loving kindness what what comes up with that is joy right so rapture and joy are naturally fit with them so in, in this in the in these Burmese centers they're not really teaching open your heart and love everybody what they're doing is they're saying this is a great technique for getting into jhana you know so just do all this love stuff don't worry about the love just get the focus you know and and it arouses this energy and then the mind goes in, can go into these states it takes you, you need to be with a master a meditation master to, to really learn this stuff uh, and and I rarely talk about it because it usually gets people freaked out and they want to take it like a drug uh, it's you you you'll get high much faster if you go to Peru and take ayahuasca um, but This is less addictive. And this doesn't make you throw up. Although it could, I guess. Well, anyway. So, uh, so I've kind of gone sideways here a little bit. But, um, but my larger point, and, and there's, there's more, um, but not tonight, um, but my larger point is to just show how this practice of loving kindness has really got so many dimensions, so many aspects. That, it's, that there is this feeling, which is lovely, but then there are insights that come through it. The development of compassion and sense of interconnection. And then that, how that influences behavior. And that we start to live differently and treat people differently. Look at the world differently, see the world differently. Our whole attitude changes, and the, and that and that besides all those kind of elements that there's also this way in which the meditation practice itself can cap- take us into other dimensions of of uh, consciousness uh, so it's a, it, it is a really really powerful and fascinating practice and one that should I think be explored for all its dimensions for it to really be appreciated and not to, not to oversimplify it into this kind of feel good and love everybody and never get mad at anybody kind of practice no matter what I mean despite the Buddhist recommendation that we not get mad at everybody um, or anybody um, yeah I, I mean that that's another dimension of it that uh, that I think can get uh, I think is deceptive, like, oh, you're supposed to love everybody, so if you get angry, then, oh, uh, well, you're a bad Buddhist, you know. Like, who needs that, right? In this practice, because it's another way, it's amazing how uh, we, uh, we I, I know I, can take these beautiful practices and turn them, in, you know, turn them into something negative, like, oh well, I should be more. No, I should be more loving. I'm supposed to be a Buddhist, you know. Why did I get angry? You know, oh, I got angry. Why? Oh, because I'm human, right? I forgot. You know, um, I'm not Buddha yet. Working on it. You know, maybe in another trillion lifetimes. Uh, so that certainly, uh, I hope, gives you food for thought and I, ho- I hope it's a benefit I-, I would recommend that you forget everything I said about jhanas until you start to have an experience like that and then try to recall what I said but if you try to get that experience that's a guarantee that you won't because the only way that arises is if there's no grasping in the mind we we have a few questions a few minutes if there are any questions uh, about the uh, talk thank you okay
1: i was intrigued by the student's question that you read to us about will i really affect the world And just a a brief comment, and then my question, but years ago during the uh, beginning of the Iraqi war, I read that a couple thousand people went somewhere in Arizona and sat and meditated for peace. And at that time, uh, I made fun of that. I thought that was crazy. Uh Woo-woo. I've since evolved a bit, and I actually do think, that it is possible to change the world with that. So my question is, did the Buddha talk about that interconnectedness, that we, how we can affect the world, not just our own uh-huh. practice?
0: Well, you were just uh, as my comment is, it was back in the 60s that there was who talked about surrounding the Pentagon and levitating it. I think that was Ram Das who was going to do that. But anyway. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know everything the Buddha taught. So, I, I don't want to say he never said something that... But, um, did he talk about so, did he talk about the potential of like many people change, through their thoughts changing the world or something like that? Hmm. There's a variety of ways I could answer that question. I mean, it's the beginning of the Dhammapada says it's you know, it's the the mind that creates the world. So, but it's not the mind doesn't create the world by sitting there and imagining it. The mind creates the world by imagining this building and then hiring people to build it. You know. But it starts with the thought of the building. There had to be a thought of this building before there was a building, right? Um, what, if you want to pull out, if I can pull out something where the Buddha talked about the power of the mind he said that the power of the concentrated mind of a fully concentrated mind is unknowable. So I don't know (laughs) if he said it's unknowable, then I certainly don't know what it is, but the implication is that the mind can do a lot. You know, there are miracles that the Buddha did, uh, Supposedly, uh, and there are miracles in different religions, and and those, uh, you know, if you, I don't blame anybody for not believing in miracles, but if you wanted to find a logical reason why miracles might happen, it w- it would be just what the Buddha said that the, that the people, that through the power of the mind, someone does something like there's a. a, a one uh, sutta where uh, one of his enemies gets an elephant drunk and, and, the drun- and the drunken elephant comes charging at the Buddha and the, supposedly the Buddha just radiates loving kindness and the elephant stops and kneels down and bows to the Buddha. So, well, I don't know. It sounds like mythology, but uh, or maybe, the, you know, it might have been like the elephant passed out and they said, oh, it was bowing to the Buddha. You know. Uh, but um, you know, who knows what a drunken elephant is going to do? You know. But uh, so I don't. I don't know. I, 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 I you know, it just. I, what I'll say is, if you know, if everybody just meditated for peace, there'd be nobody making war. So, I think that would be the best solution, you know, the simplest solution. Just get everybody to meditate for peace and they're, you know, it's hard to kill people when you're meditating, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, you should use the mic because this is, this is being recorded now. I wasn't recording those questions before. So, uh, I'm just having to frame the question the right way. In dealing with other people, and I'll give an example, like my brother, who, you know, he's angry at the world all the time. Uh So I interact with him. It's exactly what he wants me to be angry back at him. He wants to get that that reaction. And half the time I do a good job of just backing away. Half the time I get angry. (laughs) But I watch what's happening to him, and I'm like, damn it, just read this book. (laughs) Or or go meditate, go do something. But, I mean, how would you approach trying, like, I want, like, hey, can you go do some loving kindness meditation, please, brother? (laughs) Uh, Like, how do you approach someone like that to try to help them see the world differently? Uh, You know, I mean, I can say some things, but I just want to point out that I'm just sitting up here that doesn't mean I'm, you know, have the answers to, uh, you know, uh, anything. I can say is probably something you would think of as well. But I'll see if I can help you think about it. No the the most effective pro- process that I know for getting addicts to recognize. That that they need to get clean. That they need to do, that they have a problem. They need to do something about it. Is motivational interviewing, and in that process, which I've never done and I have no training in it, but I've read about it. So it's something like asking people, trying to get people in touch with what they really want, and trying to help them to see to to see that what they're doing is not gonna get them that. You know, you know, that you wanna be happy, you want to have a job, you want to have a relationship and and sort of how do you you know, how is the drinking helping that? How is the heroin helping that? You know, so you know, to maybe to translate that into your brother, it's maybe you know, finding out what what does he really want, you know, and is, is his anger somehow helping him to see that uh, his anger isn't getting him closer to what he wants. I mean, that's, yeah, but that's easy to say, you know, but to do, uh, you know, trying to change other people is a, usually a pretty fruitless uh, thing to try to do, you know. It's just, but but people that's not to say people don't change you know but i think generally they don't change when we try to change them one of the things i realized in my relationship with my wife many years ago was that you know i had this idea these are the stages <laughs> the first stage is she needs to change so that I can be happy. And then, like, I grew, grew some more, went through some therapy together, and I got to the stage of we need to change so that we can get along better. Then, the last stage if I change, she changes. If I change the way I interact with her, you know, if she starts getting angry with me and I'm not reactive, if I'm kind, or helpful, or understanding, or compassionate, or accepting. That's very different from, I get defensive, or I fight back, or I I point my finger back at her, you know. So, if I change, she changes. So, see, if you can change, maybe that'll change your brother, you know. Just don't be annoying about it. Like, oh man, like, all this anger, like, I'm just not feeling it, you know. You know, in a way, I think if you're not angry about the world right now I'm a little worried about you, you know, but I know what you mean I mean if it's just like rage uh that's uh you know just destructive and it's not really with a with like a a positive goal like if it you know I mean, I, I feel deep, deeply fearful and and sad about the world. I, you know, I noticed, and uh, so you can take this as you will. But I noticed that you know, in terms of talking points, uh, I think this will probably be the last thing I say because I should probably not go far with this. But I think it's very interesting that the. Political party now that is pushing for the removal of the president. That they're one of the big talking points is this is a really sad time. I've heard that from a lot of them, and I think that's a really interesting statement. And I think it's a, it's. I'm really impressed by that. Like that's very moving to me because it really speaks to something deeper than I'm angry. (laughs) You know, it's like I'm sad. This is really painful. This is really unfortunate this is this isn't where i want to be and and so, cuz where does anger come from you know anger usually comes from fear you know anger, the the purpose of anger ev- from an evolutionary sense is to protect us right and and the the you know you get, you get you use fight or flight right it comes out of when you're in danger and when you're in danger, there's fear. But in order to respond to the fear, you feel like you need to do something. And so a lot of times you want to fight. And so, so underneath that, there's fear. Well, fear is this sense of being vulnerable. And it's, you know, you don't want to be in that place. You want to be safe. Now, interestingly, to bring it back to the, the, the loving kindness sutta, in the Sutta, the Buddha says, even as a mother protects her child, protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Even as a mother protects her child. It doesn't say even as a mother hugs her child or kisses her child before they go off to school. She's, it's, it says as a mother protect her child. And I was just looking at the commentary uh, before I came in here, there's an ancient commentary on the Sutta, and in it, it says that the Buddha said, said to the monks when he taught them this practice, he said, use this as a protection and a meditation object. So use it as a a, a thing to meditate on, but also use it as a protection. So it's interesting, I am almost out of time now. Traditionally, there's 11 uh, benefits that come from, Doing meditation practice, things like your face will be radiant and uh, you 'll f- sleep easily and you 'll have a good rebirth and all this stuff. But this idea of protection is really interesting if if you 're carrying love and compassion and care as a protection you know when people come at you with anger or if there 's a, a, a dangerous situation and you 're responding with love or care and compassion it 's very different from responding with fear and anger right. So it, so when I looked at that, I thought, what am I protected from? I'm protected from myself. The practice protects you from yourself, not from anything else, not from anything. Although it's one of the benefits is you're supposed to be protected from weapons and fire and all this stuff. I think it, it protects you from, from yourself. Uh, maybe that's a good point to stop. And let's just gather ourselves for a moment and take a couple of breaths and... Uh,